This week, can planting trees keep our classic jags on the road? JECpodcast.com Hello, welcome to another Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Wayne Scott with you. Hope you're keeping well. And we're just about recovered here from an exhausting NEC Classic Motor Show. It is really tiring for anyone stood on the display stand telling the world just how great the Jaguar Enthusiast Club family are. And uh, yeah, we're just about recovered now and back to normal. But it was a great weekend, an award-winning weekend, and a weekend that saw Graham Searle, one of the founders of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club, and up until very recently its general manager, get recognised with a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Classic and Sports Car Annual Awards Ceremony. It was a truly moving night and you can read all about it in Friday Spotlight and of course the forthcoming issue of Jaguar Enthusiast magazine. Plus we'll be talking to Graham about that award in a future episode of this podcast coming up very soon. But it wasn't just the club winning awards, the club was also giving out awards. Awards in the shape of 5 litre V8 XKs to people who had bought our charity raffle tickets over the past 18 months. Of course, this was the charity raffle that had been delayed from being drawn in November 2020 because of the pandemic and the lockdowns preventing events and preventing the sales of the tickets. And really, it's the ticket sales at events that make all the money for the charity because that's what it's all about, raising money for the Haemophilia Society by selling those tickets for just £2. And the JEC's charity raffle was drawn on Sunday the 14th of November. It was the final day of the show at the NEC, bringing to a close that campaign that has run since 2020. And it was a huge congratulations to a Mr Gardiner with ticket 4500 who won our fabulous charity raffle Jaguar XK Signature Edition when his ticket was drawn out. There was a tense moment because we couldn't find his phone number, but luckily we found it. We looked him up on the database. We found the contact details. We've been in touch, and the car looks like it's going to be handed over at the Jaguar breakfast meet on the 4th of December at the British Motor Museum at Gaydon. So hopefully we'll be able to talk to him then and bring you all the information from that handover, and hopefully we'll be able to meet Mr Gardner with his prize as well. And don't forget, of course, all the profits from the raffle are going to the Haemophilia Society, the only UK-wide charity for those affected by a genetic bleeding disorder. They're a community of individuals and families, healthcare professionals and supporters, and we were joined during the draw, and in fact, he drew out the winning ticket by Clive Smith, the chairman of the Haemophilia Society, who told us all about their great work and what the money will go towards. Hopefully when we hand over that car, we'll also have a better indication of just how much money we raised for that charity as well. And of course, we'll let you know. Also, the other exciting thing was that we announced another event in our Diary of Celebrations next year to celebrate the centenary of the founding of Swallow Sidecars, of course, the company that gave rise to Jaguar. It's going to be another major celebration taking place at Brooklands, the historic race circuit and museum down in Surrey there. The big show day is on the 15th of May, the Sunday, but there's also a gala dinner on the 14th of May in the evening. And they're looking at doing a tour of the South Coast as well. All the information you need, by the way, is in Friday Spotlight and on the website at jec.org.uk. Just look under events there. 
And that's what's been going on in the world of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club over the past couple of weeks. But on this episode of the podcast, we're going to be talking about how we could plant trees and how planting those trees can help us keep our classic Jaguars on the road. More next after the Hall of Fame with Richard West. Motorsport Heroes with Richard West's Hall of Fame. On this week's Hall of Fame, sadly, we are marking uh, the passing of another motorsport legend. It is Tony Drawn. And Richard, he really was one of the multi-talented, nice guys of motorsport, wasn't he? Absolutely. I mean, I've been reading, I'm sure you have, as a fellow, you know, you're a fellow friend and member of his of the Guild of Motoring Writers. And there's some wonderful uh, tributes to Tony, but you couldn't miss him like yourself. He was, he was a big man, six foot five incredible racing driver and a man who had the most remarkable career in racing cars and journalism considering his health issues in his later life of course absolutely well as you mentioned he was too tall for single seater race and he found that out pretty early on in his career but it didn't deter him from a career in motorsport and it all really came into place for tony dron back in 1968 when he made a friend of one james hunt and it was that friendship, really, that carried them through their very different careers, the pair of them. Um, and also saw Tony go and do aeronautical and automotive engineering um, at college, which I guess was sort of the backup plan for him after he'd struggled to get into single-seaters. Um, but it was at that point, and working for Nick Britton, where his writing side came through and this was not something that tony did after his motorsport he was always a journalist alongside being a racing driver and that's quite rare isn't it yeah it is indeed and in fact you mentioned nick britton of course some of us will remember going back quite a long time the wonderful rally sprints that took place down on the side of the escadafford mountain in wales and of course that was nick britton again who was behind that I think Nick really saw that talent in him, but also recognised he was quite a free spirit. And therefore, it was an ideal opportunity to have a wordsmith who also could pedal a racing car quickly. Mm. And I think it, it was a career that, that shone out, really. And as you say, it's not something that happens very often. Well, he joined Motor in 1971 as the road test editor. At the same time, was still competing. He then had a real promising run in the Ford Escort Mexico Challenge that year. And then, really, years later, it was the mid-70s, really, when he finally landed a deal that would make him famous. This was really the point where Tony Dron made it onto the map of motor racing legends. It was the British Saloon Car Championship in 1974, and he arrived alongside Andy Rouse in the Broadspeed Triumph Dolomite Sprint. Well, there were cars that were really famous at the time for being the first multi-valve British engine to be put onto the market. Uh, but this was the moment when everyone noticed Tony Drawn, wasn't it? was indeed. And that, those Dolomite Sprints, they, they were at the time an incredibly good car. It was, it was a heyday for that particular mark and model. And it was also the start, very importantly, as you've just mentioned, um, of his lifelong friendship with Andy Rouse, who latterly, of course, um, he even raced at Le Mans with. So, yeah, the Escort Mexico Challenge, another great series there. The Webb family, of course, at Brandsack, bringing that Escort Mexico Challenge. We even had politicians racing in the Escort Mexico Challenge <laughs> at one point. Although I'm not sure he'd want to see Boris and Keir Starmer going head-to-head in a saloon <laughs> car at the moment. But no, uh, he, he really did establish himself very well. And it was in 74, I think you said, that he, he, he 
secured that late deal to run in those famous Dolomite sprints. Well, British Leyland absolutely loved him at the time. They really took him under their wing. And if you go into the British Motor Museum at Gaydon, you'll find a really interesting car in there. It is the March 763. It's a single-seater, and it was Unipart-sponsored. And it's basically a single-seater race car with that Triumph Dolomite engine shoehorned into the back of it. And it was Tony Dron that drove it, of course. Yeah, I don't think anyone was more surprised than he was, actually, when he got that deal. Because Unipart, a number of people, um, there was Frank Hemsworth, there was Mike Black, guys who will mean a lot to people of that era. They were running Unipart, and they were great supporters in latter years. In the early 80s, they supported the, the, the fledgling McLaren team under Ron Dennis. And they came along, but as you say, the engine was really too heavy, and it was up against uh, the Nova Motor, the Toyota Celica 2TG uh, engine. And it just really, really wasn't competitive against that. But having said that, Tony did pedal it round. And uh, despite his enthusiasm, um, realistically, it wasn't for him. And of course, he ended up going back to uh, saloon cars. He sort of jumped between teams then. And then uh, really, this is where the sort of Jaguar end of the Tony Dron story comes in. Because he really wanted to drive that XJ12C that Broadspeed had campaigned. And just at the point where he thought he might get behind the wheel, the programme kind of dissolved, didn't it? And I guess that's mm. that's really where he went looking for a sports car drive and ended up at Le Mans again, next to Andy Rouse, as you mentioned. Yeah, he did, and he also ended up in the BMW County Challenge as well. Of course, we've talked about that before with Martin Brundle, where he started his career thanks to Tom Walkinshaw, and that was a hugely competitive championship with the 3-2-3-Is, and he was there. But um, he, he drove a Porsche 924, um, I believe, as well, whilst working for a dealer at the time. And the Porsche connection was, was obviously one which I, I would think... I don't remember it particularly well, but I have to say I would think Tony did incredibly well there because he was a hugely likeable character and very polite and charming. And I think that probably rubbed off next to his driving success and opened the doors for him at Porsche, of course, when he finished 12th in later years in 1980 with Andy Rouse driving at Le Mans. Yeah, a cracking class win that was. And then after that, of course, a Kramer CK5 that he got mm. uh, behind the wheel in, pulling that amazing 221 miles per hour in qualifying down <laughs> Molesan Strait before, inevitably, the engine blew up. He returned to journalism, though, didn't he? I mean, he well, he never really left journalism, let's be honest. I mean, he, he flitted between the two, between his racing career, between his journalism, but as the years went on, he became more and more entrenched in his writing uh, and his coverage. I think he finally hung up his helmet in 2012, didn't he? That's right. I mean, I met Tony Dron in historic racing. I've lost count of the number of races at Goodwood Revival he's won, usually in Jaguars. I've seen him behind the wheel of a D-type, uh, a Lister Nobly there as well, mm. and a Mark mm. II, um, mm. showing his prowess in tin tops as ever. Um, but mm. I met him in 2006 when I uh, went along to support a team I would later go and do the PR for, which was, of course, the Triumph Assault on Le Mans Classic. And he was driving mm. In a 1961 TRS replica, which was really the beginning of the TR4 for Triumph. It was their team prize winning car of 1961. And uh, he joined and supported the car club that were running that car at Le Mans Classic at the time. Had a whale of a time doing it as well.
well. They paid him because mm. it just makes sure that they're serious. And I think he said something about being a bit of a tart, so it always made sure that he turned up to the right <laughs> garage. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he, he made a real name for himself in historic racing as well, and, and sort of kept his legend alive. It's funny, isn't it? I mean, just then, you know, that rose a smile. We're both laughing as we're talking about it. And as sad as it is, when you look back over some of these incredible names that you and I have both, you know, witnessed over the years in racing and as a colleague with you knowing you through the guild you can't help but smile because these people do bring something very very special their light burns very brightly doesn't it it does indeed and he was inspirational to a generation of journalists who read his work in the thoroughbred and classic cars magazine initially uh, and then uh, more recently in things like octane as well and yeah a very active member of the guild of motoring writers inspiring the writers of tomorrow to do just what he did and that was to underpin a motorsport career with a fantastic skill that he had for telling stories. His career actually lasted from 68 to 2011 and in those 43 seasons he scored victories in no fewer than 41 different cars including things like Mormon Plus 8, Fiat 128s, Allards, Vintage Bentleys, the list that you mentioned and even the Camaro. So, um, you know, what a guy and what a career. Brilliant. That is why he's in our Jaguar Enthusiast Club Hall of Fame Tony Dron, who passed away at the age of 75 this week. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. To find out what events you can get along to or to discover local club meets in your region, visit jec.org.uk. On this week's podcast, we're going to be talking about a very interesting subject and a subject that I think is going to become far more prominent in the historic vehicle world than it has in the past as we all grapple with how we use our historic vehicles responsibly in the shadow of climate change and all of the other problems of our time. Now, we did speak very recently on the subject of E10 fuels and that did spark something of a debate amongst our listeners. So let's get into some think uh, even more detailed about the future of historic vehicles and talk about carbon offsetting with Tom Worthington from Tree V. Hi Tom, welcome to the podcast. Hi Wayne, great to be here. We announced over the NEC Classic Motor Show weekend that your organisation, Tree V, is going to be partnering with the FBHVC to roll out a carbon offsetting scheme for car clubs, club members, historic vehicle owners and events as well. We'll get into the detail of what that scheme is going to look like when it's launched towards the end of 2021 soon. But let's just have a general conversation then about carbon offsetting so firstly how does this whole scheme work i start my car i drive down the road certain things come out the exhaust how do you offset the impact of that on the environment around us sure thing so i think a couple of terms to work through first um, we all use the term carbon offsetting i think it's a nice bit of shorthand um, but the whole act of it is called carbon balancing um, does what the name says, it balances out your emissions. And there's a couple of ways you can do that. So you have carbon offsetting, which is the protection and maintenance of forestry that has already done the capturing. And then you have something called carbon capturing, which is the planting of new woodland, which over its lifetime will capture your emissions and store them up. And the scheme we're launching with the Federation, the Federation has chose to go with carbon capturing, 
which means there'll be lots of new woodland planted right here in the UK. Are trees really the most efficient way of dealing with this? I think there's a number of ways. Trees are one of the most efficient ways. Peatland is another great way of doing it. So on those rolling Scottish hills, all the peatland is absorbing carbon at a terrific rate. And there's lots of investigations into things like deep sea algae. Um, But we did figure that the Federation's members might struggle to visit or appreciate deep sea algae compared to uh, having a nice drive through some woodland. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'd have to pull on our scuba gear to go and uh, see the impacts of that. Um, well, anyone that's got the uh, Lotus out of the James Bond film might have been okay, but everyone else might struggle. Very true. Yes, very true. Um, so I think it's a difficult concept for most people to sort of get their head around that you plant a tree in the ground and that somehow absorbs and balances out the carbon emissions from burning fossil fuels so talk us through the life cycle of a of a tree and how it achieves that i mean how long till it actually has an impact obviously as our cars and our vehicles drive along we are um, emitting out of our exhaust carbon dioxide Um, and as we all remember from primary school trees love carbon dioxide which is a very simple way of putting that equation As the trees are growing through photosynthesis, they will combine carbon dioxide and light um, to create their energy, and they will then store that as sap in the trees, which locks in the carbon. So it will vary from plant to plant, species to species, location to location. And what we do when we work with our tree planting partners is they will, as a new woodland project is uh, being launched, they will do the science and the maths of working out how big a yield uh, of plants and trees they will get from that location. But on average, about 30 to 40 years is the life cycle of the trees that we've planted to carbon capture um, Federation members' emissions. We often talk about the difference between vehicles as everyday transport, if you like, and then historic vehicles, the vehicles that are used as as leisure items, uh, as classic cars, used at the weekend and used very infrequently. And of course, the FBHVC data shows that the average historic vehicle covers around 1,200 miles a year, which is less than 0.2% of the total miles driven on UK roads over the course of 12 months. So we are just a tiny, tiny proportion of the amount of vehicle traffic out on the roads. We're not really a major problem, are we? I think that's a fair assumption. I think you alluded to it earlier, though, when you mentioned the new E10 fuels and the we are perhaps unfairly overrepresented as the problem as a classic vehicle community. I think it's very easy for those not in our world to look at a car going down the road with a with a old engine going, oh, that's terrible for the environment, not knowing that 1,200 miles a year stat. So I think there's, there's an element for us here as a group and as a community to do our bit and also just represent ourselves well to the outside world. I suppose it's doing our bit, being seen to do the right thing and actually recognising that because of the way we use our classic cars, actually it's really easy for us to make an impact to the point where actually we are not the problem at all, let alone a small part of the problem. We're just not a problem at all. Exactly. We don't want to be left behind in the future as our road network becomes ever more green. We don't want to be those not allowed to use it. And I think, and you talk about the community as well, I think 
We're a wonderful community. There's a lot that this community does to protect our heritage, to keep it going in the 21st century. Um, look at what the Federation's done with Childline. Like, it's Drive It Day, raising money for charity. Like, we're a great community that gives a lot back, and I think this is just another element of that. I think that all just helps to ensure that we don't become the scapegoats that I think some people may fear we're about to become. 100% I think that's the exact right word and I think anything we can do to stop that the better. It's great to have you on Tom because I think there's a, a perception amongst the motoring community that perhaps you know by inviting uh, someone who works with trees, someone who's very ecologically aware onto a motoring podcast you might be giving me a hard time rather than the other way around but actually you're really behind this aren't you? You really want to make this a success so that we can all use classic cars freely and with a clear conscience really definitely that's why we set trevi up um we got our first classic car as a family this year we got a little morris minor called myrtle and as we were you know browsing the ads trying to pick what to have and having the uh, a friendly debate around the kitchen table of which one to go for um we were still had that back in the back of our mind like but is this right with these eco-friendly agenda how can we do this so we're not doing this as an outsider to the community asking you all to be green and us not be part of that. We are part of the community and think we can have both things at once, classic vehicles and being green. And also there's another element to this as well. I've talked a lot about it on the podcast before where there's the element, sure, of, of emissions, fossil fuels, the oils, the lubricants that we use in our classic cars. But there's also the sense that actually the only way we're going to get our way out of the problems that the world faces is by reducing consumption, isn't it? By making sure that we get the most out of materials that have already been processed, worked and used and created into things. And classic cars, keeping them on the road, enjoying our heritage, learning from that heritage for the future is all about making us realise that make, do and mend might well be a way out of this problem. 100%. A carbon captured classic that is well maintained and can do the school run and get you to the office and through a McDonald's drive through arguably is the cleanest vehicle on the road. And I think that's all part of the messaging around what TreeV, the Federation and, and everyone in the classic car community can be doing. And it's important that we have this conversation and I hope people are listening to this podcast and just sort of soaking it in and, and perhaps share with some of your non-motoring friends because ultimately the biggest problem that we face is education, isn't it? Getting the word out there that A, we're not a real problem, we're not part of the problem and B, we are doing our bit to make sure that we can use our cars responsibly and, and it's about going out there to the public and explaining this so that actually we're not scapegoated or, or blamed in any way or looked down upon. Do you think it really is all about the education piece the general public here i definitely think so i we were speaking to people at the classic mode show this weekend who were regaling us with similar stories at petrol stations filling up and having abuse hurled at them and i know organizers of shows sometimes get criticism from the communities around them that are oh, now there's loads of cars coming to our area this is terrible and i think you're right it's, it's a it's a fairly simple educational message we've touched on it already that a well-maintained classic can be very eco-friendly its emissions are cancelled and what we want to do as part of this scheme isn't just plant trees, it is educate as well. And we're working closely with the Federation and any clubs that we are can also work with in the future to provide those educational materials as well, not just the literal saplings in the ground. Well, your organisation is called Tree V and it's carbon offsetting for motoring. 
Well, tell us how this all came about for you, Tom. What was your background in before this? And, and what was the light bulb moment that invented Tree V? So the light bulb moment came when we're like, ah, well, can we carbon offset this? And there wasn't a very simple solution or easy way to do that. Um, a lot of the carbon offsetting options out there are what we sort of term as sort of whole life carbon offsetting, whereas we wanted a really quick, tangible win that was very much directly you could see what we were doing. We know how many miles we drive a year, so we therefore can work out very actively how many emissions, how much emissions we have. Um, it, anything else, you know, be an estimate how many times do I boil the kettle a day? Who knows? And how how busy work is. Um, so the light bulb moment was surely there's a simple way to carbon capture anything that is automotive because it's a very quantifiable amount of miles it does. Um, and then it grew from there. Our, our family background is we we run another business. We've uh, run lots of business networking with small and medium enterprises. So from the background of that, it just sort of grew from there, really. And uh, your team is growing all the time, I know, but you've got some real expertise amongst the team at Tree V, haven't you? Well, seeing as this is a family-run business and one of that team is my wife, who's probably staring at me from across the room, I'll say there's a lot of expertise <laughs> in the team and they're all wonderful. Um, but yes, we are a family-run business. Um, there's myself, my wife, and because I am a glutton for punishment, also my mother-in-law. Um, but we're all big car fans and it's sort of it's been really 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 nice to sort of get out there with Myrtle with Trevi and just be part of a part of the group that for a long time we just visited car shows as a as a regular punter so it's nice to sort of have some some wheels in the fight so to speak well we met when of course the FBHVC did their latest round of research studies and that survey gave us the figure that uh, just over a third of classic car owners and enthusiasts wanted to see some kind of carbon offsetting or carbon capture scheme rolled out for the historic vehicle community. So uh, always an organisation to listen to our members, the FBHVC, went out searching. And it's been probably two years in the making, really, from the very beginning of starting to look at this to where we are now. And we went through so many different schemes, and I'm sure you've come across them in your market research as well, Tom, and they sort of vary between doing humanitarian projects in different parts of the world to offset things to sort of big funds where you can't really see a tangible output for the money uh, or also ways of planting trees that for me at least felt like we were sort of introducing invasive species into our countryside but you've tried to tick off all the boxes and, and, and address all of those concerns haven't you with tree v Definitely, and I hope we have. But yes, I think ultimately the fact that we can deliver trees in the UK that are natural to the area, that will flourish in the area. We want them to flourish, otherwise they won't capture the most carbon they can. That is really important to us. Now, there's a lot of schemes out there, you've mentioned already, and they all have their positives. And one of those things, anything that can help is a good thing. But I do think it is nice to have something tangible and recognisable for us. So tell us about where these trees go. How do you get access to the land? How does the actual physical tree landing in the ground bit work? So uh, the Federation, um, so any members and clubs that are part of the Federation that choose to capture through the Federation, um, the, the trees we planted up in near Tomswood, uh, which is up in North Yorkshire. Um, that's the first site that the Federation has picked. Um, and we will hopefully grow from there. And there is there is potential in the future, um, depending on numbers and, and the interest, 
to potentially even get the Federation its own forest as we work towards that. Um, but for now, it's part of a, a wider reforestation project happening around Tomswood. Um, but our tree planting partners, they, they have um, projects all over the UK. Um, and again, we, we can explore lots of variety of uh, types of trees and types of woodland and various ecosystems because they all bring their own different benefits. Um, but for now, the Federation of the Tay have chosen one in northern England, which looks uh, a really lovely spot. I love the idea that the historic vehicle community could be creating its own forest. And the best way to get to that full forest outcome is to use our classic cars more and ensure that we offset every mile. It's just it's just brilliant. I'm well up for this. <laughs> Anything that gets me out in the car more, I'm supportive of. Perhaps we can have some picnic tables in there. We could do club runs out to the forest one day. Exactly. Well, it gives you an excuse to use the classic, doesn't it? Do you jump in the ordinary everyday car or do you jump in the classic, which is, you know, helping some trees and growing some woodland? Well, you've got a social responsibility to enjoy your classic more, haven't you? I like that. A social responsibility to get our classic cars out of the garage. That's what we want to be doing. (laughs) As we've alluded to, we did launch a new scheme between the FBHVC, which, of course, this car club is a member and supports. Uh, So this is due to come on stream later this year, early next year uh, there will be a mechanism through which members of this club can go onto the federation website put in their own mileage and offset it that way but there's also an option to plug in events and one-off tours as well isn't there yeah 100 percent. so as you say the federation will be launching this scheme on their website towards the end of the year and it really is simple so anyone that is a member or as you say a member of a club that's a member uh the twister they can go on the website they will just pick their vehicle type um we've got the seven categories that the federation tracks in their annual survey so everything from agricultural tractors to motorcycles to cars to vans to lorries to military vehicles you pick your vehicle type you then choose your mileage band small medium and large um each one's slightly different for each different category Um, and then it'll just give you a really simple price there's no there's no calculating to do there's no picking of well what input do i need to make here or there it's a really simple process and you just check out um at that point as you say we also can do it for um club events and club rallies and um any tours really um and they the people that want to do that can come speak to us directly and we can give bespoke quotes to um, those people based on sort of what type of vehicles are doing the rally, the locations you're going to. You know, if you're going somewhere really sunny in the south of France, we might charge you a bit more because we'd be just jealous. Um, <laughs> but otherwise, um, otherwise, yeah, we can put something together that means you're paying for exactly the miles that you do. And presumably this is worked out on the known engine size and output of a series of vehicle models, because I'm assuming a 5-litre F-type will be outputting a lot more than, you know, an X-type that has just the 2-litre engine or something. Correct, yeah. So that's why we've been able to do such a great scheme with the Federation, because we have access to all that data that you mentioned in the annual survey. Um, So from there, we've been able to do really targeted and precise models of exactly how much carbon will come out for each vehicle type and the sort of miles they do. And then, as you say, for a club event rally, we will take on board exactly the type of car they do, the type of driving it will be and then take it from there. And, and what we say to all the customers that we work with is, we just want to be guided by you. You're the experts on what your car's doing. Let us know and we'll do some math. We do hear a lot of concern from classic vehicle enthusiasts that our hobby, taking our cars out, enjoying what we do with them, which 
I think to the outside world is often seen as a, a slightly elitist hobby and one for the wealthy, but in actual fact isn't because we know from the Federation survey most vehicles in the hobby are worth less than £10,000 and most people are just normal folk. They have normal incomes. It does at times feel like the costs of running a classic car are just escalating all the time. You know, we've got to pay more for our fuel now to get super unleaded and E5. We've got to now pay a bit more to offset um, our carbon output. What what would your answer be to that point of view? I think that's a really fair point. And I don't think there's an argument to say it isn't a rising cost as a hobby. What we pride ourselves on at Trevi, though, is a very, very cheap cost to do this. It is a relatively small amount compared to the amount we would spend on maintaining our classics. And it's it's a cost that we hope brings benefits to the community in the long term, helps attract future members. And really, it's just good for the for sort of the future of us all, really, um, classic car owners or not. But it is, I do agree with the point that it's a shame that we have to pay this and other road users perhaps don't feel the need to. Well, hopefully it will be enough over the coming years to educate the public, keep public opinion with us as we move forward into whatever the future holds. And most importantly, keep our classic cars on the road and keep our freedoms to use them as and when we like intact. And that's the most important thing. And and, uh, talking about enjoying those freedoms, Tom, what have you got plans for the Morris Minor next year? What have you got uh, on the cards for your trips? We just can't choose which which show to go to now. We've got a car to go in. Um, we've got a variety of things. So we're members of the Coventry and Warwickshire uh, Morris Miners branch. We've got some things planned with them. Um, we would like to sort of do a proper holiday in her, sort of maybe brave enough to sort of drive around the lake. So we shall see. I'll keep you posted. Or we'll just break down and I'll have to just ring you for a lift. Advice and help always readily given here from our car club. Uh, we're always happy to help, even though you're in a Morris Minor. We won't hold that against you. <laughs> Well, you can find out more information on this scheme very soon via the Federation website at fbhvc.co.uk, also at tree-v.com. Tom, thanks for joining us and enjoy the Morris Minor. Will do, it's an absolute pleasure. Cheers, Wayne. That's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to keep in touch with us here on the JEC podcast via www.jecpodcast.com. And you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there to leave us a message, or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages. Don't forget, you can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the Join Today button on the top right-hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits, plus the fantastic, glossy, 130-page monthly magazine that's all included in your membership of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the JEC. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.